welcome to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM, brought to you by Riverbend Seniors Community. When you live at Riverbend, you will feel right at home. Well, Sharon, we are on for another day. We're a little late, eh? Uh, Just a little bit, yeah. And Only so about our four first, minutes. Our first guest has been patiently on waiting yep. on the phone. Thank you, Will. Hello. Hi. And so we're having Will Waddell, who is, uh, um, what is your position? I want to talk about renewable energy system, but you are utilities manager? That's correct. I'm yeah. the manager of utilities. Right. Prince George. And so when I learned about the renewable energy system, and I know that you probably don't like being on the radio, but I think that this is a brilliant um, thing that we've had happen in our, our city. And when I did a little research, there really isn't any other... Well, there is a few municipalities in Canada who have done it, but not very many. No, there isn't a huge number of uh, municipalities that have done it, but uh, the one thing with ours is that we're quite unique that we actually partner with a, the local sawmill. So yes. that's where we get our heating source from. Yes. And so who thought of the idea? Like, who did the research to even think of it? So the the original idea was started in uh, 2001. So it's been uh, in the books for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2008, there was a fairly significant pushback from the community because they were worried about greenhouse gases and the emissions in the downtown area and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it got revamped at that point. So it's kind of gone through a number of uh, different uh, reiterations over the years uh-huh. uh, in order for us to get to the point that we're at now. And so constructing it, because I, I was thinking about when I was um, a young woman working in Toronto and they were putting in the subway and how everything worked around it. And, you know, I don't even remember the construction going on downtown for this. Yeah, so the the installation of this pipe is, is quite a bit shallower than what we would actually put our water mains at. Uh-huh. Our water mains are, are between 8 and about 10 feet deep, uh, whereas this is only about 3 feet down. So it has a little bit less of an impact that way. Okay. Um, but there is two lines that go in uh, a supply and a return. So there was a number of roads that were dug up uh, along George Street and 5th, and it goes all the way out to um, where the RCMP building is as well. Right, and it comes from Lakeland Mills, which is what, three kilometers? I think in total we've got about close to four kilometers of pipe that is buried, and that's twin pipes. Isn't that, when are we going to put in a subway? (laughs) (laughs) When we get to be two or three million people, right? Yeah, it's going to take a lot more population. (laughs) Well, I don't want to be here then. And probably most of us don't. So, well, this must have been kind of an interesting experience. Um, Were you part of the development in the drawing and the, you know, the uh, organization of all of the equipment, the digging, the, the, the removal of the dirt. Well, I suppose the dirt would be removed temporarily. That's right. So I wasn't here at the uh, the time of actual construction. There was a number of other people with the city that were involved in that portion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was constructed back in, in uh, 2011-2012. Okay. And uh, so it's been in, in service for, for eight to ten years now. So um, oh. it's it does create a quite a bit of uh, an impact. Uh, we saw a little bit of that this year when we did a new connection into the new parkade. Right. Um, so it does have to have that road opened up in order for those pipes to be installed. Okay, so that's what that was all about. I wondered what it was. Mm-hmm. And, and so this 
um, comes from sawmill resi residue, like wood wood uh, waste. That's correct. So the the waste material that uh, Lakeland has, uh, they burn that in their boiler on their side of the system, and they use that heat to uh, operate their kilns, mm -hmm. um, and also to provide us with the heat uh, for our district energy system. So now, is the kiln to dry the wood? That when the there's yeah, the kiln is what is actually dries the wood. Yeah, right. Um, and so the hot water then um, is pumped through those kilometers into uh, through the underground, and then um, who does it heat? So currently we have uh, 11 buildings that are connected. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got uh, a number of them are city-owned buildings, mm -hmm. but we also have the provincial courthouse that is connected. We've got the uh, Wood Innovation Design Centre uh, that is connected, mm -hmm. the RTMP building, uh, the art gallery, uh, just for a couple of other ones that have also been connected. So how is it, when I was a kid, we had radiators that um, had water in them to heat our rooms, I remember, and mom had to, uh, dad worked nights, I think, so she had to get up in the middle of the night, put coal in the furnace. Is, yeah. that, is that the same idea? Yeah, so it's a very similar system. So we use that hot water uh, in order to heat uh, inside of the building. Mm -hmm. So you'll have uh, radiators that kind of surround the perimeter of the building, mm -hmm. and then those provide heat. Mm -hmm. um, in some situations, like in the new parkade, we actually have uh, small radiator heaters that are mounted up high, and then they blow um, uh, air across that in order to provide heat into those spaces. Yeah, I know that as a, a kid, I remember it was nice heat. Yes. You know, we were never cold. and Mind you, we didn't expect to walk around in 72 degrees either. We wore heavy socks and heavy clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think with the, when we got the natural gas and all that stuff, instead of having cold delivered, I think we all decided we were in Florida during the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now the benefits, um, one of them I read was about reducing particulate emissions. So our um, air quality must be improved a little bit. That's correct. So part of the project was actually to install at Lakeland a uh, electrostatic precipitator. And what that does is it creates a negative charge and it actually pulls any of the particulate matter off the burning of the, the wood residue and removes that. So between 95 and 98% of that is uh, removed from the airshed. So you were probably in town here before that happened. Yep. And you would have noticed there was soot on the vehicles and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what this program actually helped to reduce. Mm -hmm. And, of course, with us burning a wood residue, we don't have the same uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with the, uh, the burning of natural gas. So what university did you have to go to to learn how to speak like this? <laughs> because what, uh, le what did you say, electric something or other there the electrostatic precipitator <laughs> <laughs> takes a bit of time to get used to saying that <laughs> i'd have to practice yeah. <laughs> do you see it in your mind when you say it yeah <laughs> yeah i i mean engineering i guess that's what you you are is an engineer eh yeah, I'm an engineering technologist, uh, so mm -hmm. I, I graduated from Okanagan University College. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, engineers, uh, I think of um, Albert uh, Kohler, Col 
mm-hmm. and he's an engineer, and he got the engineering course going up at the university. Yes, that's a, excellent. It's great to have that kind of uh, resource back in our community. Yes, it is. And uh, my uncle, he was in the uh, Royal Canadian Engineers during the Second World War, and he was brilliant. You know, his, I, 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 well, I think I think you're brilliant because you think differently than me. <laughs> well, we've got to have people think in a whole bunch of different ways so we can come up with ideas like this, right? Yeah, exactly. And so... The greenhouse reductions, um, and then the other thing I noticed was reliance on non-renewable resources. That's correct. So instead of using fossil fuels, which um, at, at the moment we still st- have somewhat of an abundance, but they're, they're very difficult for us to get access to. So mm-hmm. by using these renewable resources like uh, timber and, and things like that, and especially the residue uh, component of it, um, it's definitely renewable for us. That's really, I mean, we have to go that way, don't we, Will? Uh, we just have to start going that way, and uh, we can't. What did, I I heard somebody, oh, it was that Attenborough, that um, British guy who's an environmentalist, and he said if, if ca- uh, Canada was a cow and you were milking that cow to mil- make money and you kept milking it and didn't take care of it, eventually the cow would die and mm-hmm. you would have no milk. And he said, and so then you have to look at different ways of milking the cow and you have to look at taking care of the cow so the cow can produce. And and I thought that was a good analogy about what we have to do to, to keep um, our earth alive and keep going. And that's why I was so interested in this, Will, because... When you say when it when it first started being investigated, that's pretty interesting about how the vision of our um, city councillors and our mayor were back in those. You know, that's a long time ago. Yes, it is quite a quite a while ago. So this technology has been in use for a number of years over in Europe, and that's kind of what this is based off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having those partnerships with um, industry that's in the area and being able to use uh, a resource that otherwise was being wasted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the mill has to have a certain temperature in order to have their production going. So we're actually using, for the most part, a waste component uh, from their side of things. Yeah, that would have been burned in a beehive burner years ago. Yeah, but it's even just the temperature, the the return that they're getting from those sites. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the temperature that we're taking off of there doesn't really have a huge impact on it. So I think we're like 15, 20% of the total heat that they produce is what we actually use. So it's a very small amount uh, in comparison. So now do we have to pay for this somehow? Yeah. So yeah. we pay Lakeland based on the amount of energy that we pr- are are um, provided, and then from there, then we charge that back to our customers, so the different uh, facilities that we have. So at each site, they have uh, their own, like you were mentioning before, like a almost looks like a radiator. Yep. It's a little more sophisticated than that now, mm-hmm. but um, each, each building has one of those, and that's called an energy transfer station, okay. and that's where the energy is transferred from our system to their system, and then they circulate their own uh, piping within their building. And and then, but they're not having to pay the price of, of gas or oil or uh, propane or any of those fuels. Yeah. Yeah. But so, you do have a system that would run on gas when the mill goes down, right? 
That's correct. So we've got uh, two backup boilers that sit in uh, the peaking plant, which is on the corner of uh, 2nd and George. And so that uh, provides us with that reliability that in the event that they have to go down. That's Mm -hmm. also where the pumps are that actually circulate the the fluid throughout the system. And it said about um, energy security Mm -hmm. and and, uh, non-taxable revenue for um, the city. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So at the time that this was developed, the, the thought was is that natural gas prices were going to skyrocket. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to find a way that uh, we could actually have a system that provided us with that surety of what that cost would be. Mm-hmm. Um, natural gas prices did not go up, but uh, we can uh, pretty closely match what it would cost for a natural gas system. Plus, we take care of all that maintenance and, and all of that uh, that they would have to do on their own boiler system. Yeah, well, um, natural gas will probably go up because you know it's it's a non-renewable, and so eventually it's going to go up. So the economic part of that was um, price certainty, non-tax revenue, reduced carbon tax payments. Mm-hmm. I don't get that carbon tax payments. I, you know, for me. In my my mind, I think carbon tax payments should be put away t- for um, to um, investigate alternative energy. Yes, so that's one thing that we, as the city, that this is one of our largest um, components as far as that greenhouse gas offsets. Mm-hmm. So because we use uh, fuel for heating certain buildings, we use fuel for uh, all of our equipment, all of our vehicles. Um, we actually have to pay a tax on top of that because of the amount of greenhouse gases we're putting into the environment. Right. But because we have this district energy system, we actually are the ones that can create the credits. So we don't have to uh, pay as much on an offset because we do have this system in place. Well, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, now you've got partnerships. So the partnerships would be with uh, the mail and and the other people who are using the energy? So we have contracts with the the people that we provide uh, energy to. Yes. um, And we have a contract with uh, Lakeland for that supply. Mm -hmm. They're they're completely uh, separate from each other, and each individual building has its own contract. Even our own buildings have their own contract. So as... uh, uh, as the new hotels went up, are the, did you mention that the hotel is connected too? No, they, we did provide them with that alternative, but uh, they, they were not uh, interested in signing on at that time. Okay. Um, although the uh, Ramada Hotel has recently signed with us, and we're hoping to have that connection complete for uh, 2021. Oh, that's good. Hmm. And I think that the other people should take advantage of it, too. I mean, when you've got a big hotel and you're heating it with oil or gas, holy cool. Anyway, I just got a a wrap-up sign from Judy. So, well, I just want to shine a light and and brag a little bit about um, Prince George and about the vision that... uh, you all had in doing this and I wanted to thank you uh, for coming on because I I don't think you really wanted to but I'm really glad you did <laughs> oh I, I enjoy talking about this subject it's uh, it's something that's near and dear to my heart it's and uh, I think that it uh, definitely has a huge amount of benefit for our community I agree with you and so uh, three cheers for for the uh, renewable energy system that we have in our city. Thank you so much, Will. All right. Have a good day. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Um, and this is Senior Moments, and we're just going to take a short break. Tim Yule here reminding you to tune in every Thursday at 1230 for Entertainment 90, your weekly review of entertainment locally and everywhere else. We're reviewing everything from movies and television to theater and music. What's hot and what's not and helping you get the most of your entertainment dollar. That's Entertainment 90 every Thursday at 1230, only on your community radio station, 93.1 CFIS. And until then, stay entertained, my friends. Prince George's newest seniors community is waiting for you at 1444 20th Avenue. Riverbend Manor offers a safe, affordable, and centrally located rental housing option. Rent is based on your income and includes three daily meals, all of your utilities, housekeeping, and much more. Riverbend has a jam-packed weekly calendar of activities to fit both active and passive lifestyles. Part of Prince George's leading seniors community, Riverbend Manor. Call 250-596-8097 to book your tour today. The Department of Veterans Affairs Canada runs a program called Canada Remembers, with the mission of helping young and new Canadians, most of whom have never known war, come to understand and appreciate what those who have served Canada in times of war, armed conflict, and peace stand for, and what they have sacrificed for their country. While the program is year-round, it receives particular emphasis on Remembrance Day, November 11th. This Remembrance Day moment brought to you by Prince George City Councillor Terry McConaughey, who reminds you to please observe two minutes of silence on Remembrance Day to remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, lest we forget. Forecast from Environment Canada for today mainly cloudy, the 40% chance of flurries. Wind from the north at 20k, a high of minus 1 with a wind chill of minus 9. Clearing this evening, a low of minus 9. On Wednesday, mainly sunny and a high of minus 2. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Seniors Community on 93.1 CFIS-FM. This is Senior Moments. Well, Sharon, we're back on again, and our next guest is on the line. And our next guest is the Executive Director of Urban Aboriginal Justice Society. And uh, welcome, Bill Pavich. Thanks for having me, Sharon. I look forward to chatting with you over the next few minutes. Well, I asked you to come on, Bill, because those... Folks that uh, live in the city and and pay taxes and and go to work and don't work in the the um, area that you and I work in don't know about this program and I think it's a very important program and I I wondered if you would mind sharing uh, about Urban Aboriginal Justice Society and when it started and the purpose I think you that society um, is for Aboriginal people I guess we I'm supposed to use indigenous people only well we haven't quite changed our mission statement to to reflect that but uh, (laughs) probably a good point nowadays Sharon but our mission is to reduce the number of Aboriginal people that come in conflict with the law and we do that by a variety of reasons, uh, sorry, a variety of roles, uh, diversion, reintegration, and prevention. But we've been in existence now for 23 years, which is over two decades, and that's a significant amount of time. And this organization has helped a lot of Indigenous folks navigate the uh, landscape of the criminal justice system and maybe even better to, to be diverted from it altogether so they, they don't get their foot in that door because we know... Once you get in that system as an Indigenous folks, it's very hard to get out. Yeah, and and um, you have programs for youth and, and programs for adults as well. Yeah, that is correct. We 
have a program where we go into PGRCC or Prince George Regional Correctional Centre and we help uh, offenders reintegrate back into the community. At the same time, we have uh, elders that work with folks in there and we do cultural awareness training for the for clients and it really seems to help quite a bit. And that includes like talking circles and one-to-one support and community guest speakers and it allows you to make a connection with them before they come into the community. And we know how that how important that is to have connectiveness among Indigenous folks. It, it uh, makes a lot of difference when you try to support them when they come out if they know and have some degree of trust for you. You know, I don't think a lot of people know about uh, or have ever read the, um, uh, what was it called, the, with the British North American Act and know uh, the agreement that the British, when they um, colonized Canada, that they made an agreement with the indigenous people that a promise that you allow, uh, in my own words, you allow us to use your land and we will look after you and your family forever. That was the agreement in a lot more words and pages and stuff. And that doesn't happen, does it? Uh, I think that there's been a, some good intent by our government. I, I, I don't think that all the obligations were fulfilled. I mean, a lot of treaties were, were made and, and either broken or not fulfilled, which makes it very difficult for Indigenous communities to, to have that level of trust that should be there. Yeah, I need to, because um, what, what I was getting at is, our jails are full of indigenous people. The greater percentage of people in prison are indigenous. Well, right now in our local facility, probably 70% are, are indigenous. Yeah, and and there's a reason for that, isn't there? Well, a lot of folks know about it and some don't, but we know you talk about the British North American Act and we can talk about the Indian Act and how that basically sets some pretty impressive guidelines for Indigenous communities. And we also know about residential school, and you talked about colonialism. I mean, most people don't know. They think it's uh, a past argument, but the last residential school in Canada was 1996. It closed, and that's not that long ago, Sharon. I know. It isn't that long ago. And uh, I, when I was working at the hospital down in uh, Lytton, I didn't know anything, you know, I came from Ontario. Where I lived, our neighbors were um, Aboriginal people, um, First Nations, Native uh, Indians. I don't know, the, the name changes all the time. I don't know who makes the decision to change the name. I mean, who would make the decision to change my name? I would. I wouldn't have any anybody making that decision on my behalf to change my name. That kind of ticks me off. But never mind, that's me. But when I came out here, I had no idea about reservations or abuse. And, and I worked at the hospital. And um, I worked with an Aboriginal woman who was going to St. She had gone through St. George's Residential School. And she told me about it. And in my mind, I thought... Wow, they had a choice. Uh, the guys did the farming stuff in the morning. The women did the cooking, baking, and stuff. And then in the afternoon, they went to school. And and I, because I would like to have been a farmer, I thought all that was great. And then as they got to know me, um, one of the women told me that her son was being sexually abused by the the head of St. George's. And... 
And so one of the guys that worked part-time at the hospital was a retired Mountie. And I went to him and I told him what I had heard. And he and I wrote to uh, Victoria. And we were the beginning of the shutdown of St. George's residential school. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. I, people blame Aboriginal people, Indigenous people for whether, where they are, for they're in jail. They don't look at the history of, of the people who were here before any of us and their wonderful way of loving the earth and the animals and the, the uh, trees and everything that gave them life. Yes, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people are really in, in touch with that. And I read once before that it takes one generation to destroy people's culture and maybe seven generations to get it back. And residential school, I think, resonates well with that comment when you look at the subsequent uh, harm that created to generations after generations uh, and their traditions to their cultural knowledge being not passed down to them, yeah. not being part of a strong and healthy family and community. and. It's, uh, I think it's very difficult to rebound off that and also have the capacity to actually address it. It's very, uh, it's very disheartening at times to see a lot of the Indigenous folks that go through our criminal justice system that are really a lot of good people. They just, they don't, uh, just trying to deal with some of the stuff they've been growing up with their whole lives. But uh, it is, uh, it is sadly that way at times. Well, I haven't worked with a, an indigenous woman or man that hasn't been traumatized as a child, and so um, we have. And also, fetal alcohol syndrome is another thing that happened because um, people didn't know about not drinking during pregnancy, and um, and I think. Uh, um, what you're doing is trying to help ju people, indigenous people, understand that it isn't their fault, that they are worthwhile, that they they um, deserve a chance, and and that I'm my own personal feeling is that I'm sorry that other people don't understand that there's seventy percent of indigenous people um, running uh, keeping people. At, in work up at the jail and in parole and in probation and the police. That's the way I look at it, Bill. Well, the one thing that I've really seen over my career, and it's been 27 years plus in the criminal justice field, that you really see a lot of efforts being made to address that. I, I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's uh, perfected, but I know we have some pretty good relationship with Prince George Regional Correctional Center, and there's a lot of good people working up there. and. That includes Indigenous staff members that really want to be part of making a difference and addressing that over-representation of Indigenous folks within our system. And that's all, that makes you feel good because when you have those genuine conversations with those people across the table and you can see in their eyes that they care, uh, that's what's going to help make the difference. I agree. And um, now do you go to court with, you have an outreach worker, do they go to court with the youth? Well, there's a couple different alternatives. We try to do diversion programs with our youth. So, for example, keeping in line with restorative justice uh, circle model. If uh, a kid does an infraction or, or a wrong, we, we try to get the, the, the person that did the crime and the victim together and maybe community members, whether that be friends, family, or other folks, to come there to support them. And 
really have a chance to deal with some of the harm and at the same time still be accountable for their behaviors. It really helps to bring the victims of the offender to, in, in the community to a more satisfying experience of justice and also maybe healing, and I think that's something that we try to work on. But we do have Indigenous courts that we're the, our organization is the navigator, which means we help set it up and we get the parties together in a justice court system, uh, and it's uh, it's very effective. I think we've had like 20 folks went down 2019, and they work with the elders and the court system to come up with healing plans, and those healing plans allow them to have a common agreeable goal about how to address so they don't become back in that system. And that could be, you know, restitution, community hours, working with an elder, those kind of things. And I, th- I think it makes a big difference, Sharon. Well, it, it must be powerful to sit in with uh, the, um, I don't know what other word to use, perpetrator and the victim. And to, think, yeah, to yeah. have that, for them to have a conversation like that that to me would take an awful powerful person who was the victim to go in be willing to go in and and uh, talk to the perpetrator about what it was like to be victimized yeah and it offers a you know a safe controlled environment where people can come across the table and, and see each other in such a way that maybe they normally wouldn't because uh my experience in the justice system it's it's hard when you demonize a, an a offender, and, and maybe sometimes I understand that why that is, but when I say demonize, I'm not trying to give them an easy out saying, you know, listen to the hard luck story and feel sorry for what I'm saying is for the, the victim to see that that is just another person across the table and they can control some of their fear that they, they have in dealing with that day in and day out. I can only imagine how hard it is if you had some trauma against you from somebody in you, you never get to see them, you never understand it, and, and you're always looking over your shoulder, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know if that sense, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about developing compassion, you know, through, instead of fear, when uh, uh, on both sides of the table. Compassion for the victim, I'm sorry for what I did, and, and, and the victim understanding that this person is um, a victim themselves as a child. Yeah, it really focuses on repairing the harm that was caused by crime, you know, and still at the same time maybe reducing the chance of it happening again. And it still requires the, you know, the offender to take responsibility for action and the harm they cause. So it's it's not just an easy way out. It's really to help address, again, to, to have some healing for more so for the victim than, than anybody. But uh, it, it has work. Research has shown that it does. You know, and, and I think that it's something that we need to focus on more in the future, especially with the Indigenous communities. I agree with you because I've, I've um, you know, I've seen it work my own self. And so you have, um, you, how many staff are there? You have an outreach and... Uh, yeah, we have 13 staff. We have community reintegration workers, uh, institutional reintegration workers, cultural liaisons that go up to the PGRCC and got a variety of other staff of administration to myself and the thing I really like about our organization is that we have a lot of competencies but what I even more like so is that we have people that are really committed and care about making a difference and you know how hard that is you've been in the field for a, a long time you you have to get people that care and mm-hmm. save time that want to support people and, and not save them there's a big difference Sharon. Oh is there ever the rescuer and the person who teaches people how to be accountable and responsible for self. There's a 
big difference. Now, uh, you have a board of directors as well. Um, How many are on your board? Uh, Five. Majority of being indigenous, really committed, caring people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really happy to work with this board. It's one of the best boards I've worked with. It's just it's an easy transition for me to come here. Yeah. And do you need volunteers? You know what? Uh, with COVID, it makes it a, a little bit difficult, but we're always open to doing that, especially with people that uh, have something to offer. And, I mean, that depends on what, it, like, some folks know a lot of some about the cultural teaching. It's nice to have that. Or maybe they know how to do income tax, or they just want to support putting events together. So there's many different areas that they could help with if they're interested in doing so and it's always going to go based on the volunteer strengths and sort of the client needs Sharon. Do you have to be indigenous to volunteer? No. No you just have to care and have uh, bring something to the table that would add to a person's uh, future. Exactly Sharon like some folks are really good at crafts for example. Yeah that's what I was thinking. Teaching and sharing of skills, that would be good. I was thinking of music as well. and yeah, that, that would be good. Yeah, and language. Um, someone who has the indigenous language to teach them along with the uh, culture. Yeah, especially with the youth. I think that, you know, we know that with colonization and a lot of things that have happened, we lost a lot of that cultural knowledge being passed on. Well, it's called identity, and identity is the most important thing that we have. And in some cases, identity is stolen. And and this identity of the First Nations people, the first people, was stolen by colonization. And if you don't have an identity, if you don't know who you are, uh, I don't know what that would feel like. I really don't. I don't know what it feels like, but... We sure see the results in homelessness and drug addiction, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and suicide. I mean, we well know that a lot of our indigenous folks are out in the community homeless, and they're they're dying daily from opiates. I mean, and I mean, it just that's what the result of all this is in some regards. Because they don't know who they are, and because they feel um, worth less instead of worth something and it's a huge big job to reinstate that um you know you i think about uh how hard the scottish people fought the british to keep their identity the welsh fought uh, fought to keep their identity the irish fought to keep their identity and um and so I think if people could see it as that way, the the first people, the First Nations people, were first here, and they have an identity that was taken from them, and given yeah. given one that wasn't theirs. Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, I think that if people want to get involved, they get a hold of your admin, eh? That would be good. Yeah. Yeah, admin at p. Prince George PGUA Justice Society PGUAJS dot CA. Yeah, they can find us. We have a web page, and they feel free to give us a call too. Uh, just in the earlier conversation, I would just pop the mind. That I read a study once that was in Saskatchewan that basically that jails institutions have have become the new residential school, and that sadly that more kids are likely to go to jail than to graduate from high school. That's a, that's a, that's a sad commentary. 
Isn't that an interest? But it's true. It is true because they have nowhere to go. Yeah, and the education, uh, um, like uh, I think they have to leave the uh, reserves to get education, especially if they want to go to uh, college or anything. Um, anyway, Judy's giving me a signal that we have to wrap it up, Bill. I want to really thank you for uh, informing us and having this conversation with me. <laughs> hey, just a, just a quick plug for you that it is Restorative Justice Week, November 15th to 21st. Oh! And our, our folks at the Prince George RCMP are part of that with us, too. We, we did a release, press release, and dealing with Linda Parker from Community Policing and Restorative Justice Coordinator, a, a person that really cares about restorative justice. I, I hope that people can investigate that a little bit further. Uh, I know you're in a rush here, Sharon, but no, uh, no. always nice chatting with you. Yeah, no, that was great. I didn't realize that it was Restorative Justice Week. But I think, uh, I wish people would go on your website and have a look and maybe learn a little bit of history about uh, colonization and taking away someone's belief system and, and, and putting their own on them. Bill, thank you so much. Thanks for all your service too, Sharon. All right. Talk to you Bye-bye. later. Bye. So we're going to take a short break, and and then we'll have uh, um, Humane Society on to see how their fundraiser went. This is Senior Moments, and we'll be back in just a minute. Advanced registration for indoor walking at CN Centre is now available. Indoor walking is being offered Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4 in one and a half hour blocks. The concourse will be closed for a half an hour between each block for cleaning and sanitation. Advanced registration is required to keep numbers within provincially mandated limits. To register for indoor walking at CN Centre, phone 311 or visit princegeorge.ca slash register. For more information on walking options, go to princegeorge.ca slash walk. Highway 16 east of Prince George is currently closed due to a vehicle incident between Dome Creek and Loose Roads, 60K east of Purden Lake. There's no detour available. The estimated time of reopening is 3 o'clock this afternoon. Once again, Highway 16 is closed 60K east of Purden Lake between Dome Creek and Loose Roads with no detour available. The estimated time of reopening is 3 o'clock. For up-to-date information on this and other road conditions across the province, visit drivebc.ca. The Red Remembrance Poppy has become a familiar emblem of Remembrance Day due to the poem In Flanders Fields, written by Canadian physician Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. After reading the poem, a professor at the University of Georgia, Moyna Michael, swore to wear a red poppy year-round as a sign of remembrance. The custom of wearing the red poppy each Remembrance Day spread to European and Commonwealth countries within three years. This Remembrance Day moment brought to you by Automagic. On November 11th, Remembrance Day, please take time to honor the many veterans, both men and women, who fought and died for our freedom. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, mainly cloudy with a 40% chance of flurries. Wind from the north at 20K, a high of minus 1 with a wind chill of minus 9. Clearing this evening, a low of minus 9. On Wednesday, mainly sunny and a high of minus 2. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Seniors Community. When you live at Riverbend, you will feel right at home. We're back on, and our next guest is on the line. Angela. Hi. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm really good. I, I uh, saw all your stuff on Facebook, and Shirley holding cute little 
critters. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to see how it went. I went fantastically well. It was actually the first time we've done an event like this. So, you know, we weren't really um, familiar with the territory and we weren't quite sure what we would do financially, but we raised $22,000. <gasps> Awesome. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was an absolutely amazing event for us. We were just astounded um, by the generosity of the community, and um, we were so proud of the people that uh, got involved. So it was called In the Doghouse. Now tell me what the how, how it uh, ran. You had to put someone in the doghouse, right? Yes, yeah, so it ran <laughs> similar to your general, your, your usual jail and bail. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we just tweaked it a little bit to fit in with an animal shelter. So instead of bailing somebody out, you paid for the adoption fee. Oh. Um, and then, yeah, throughout the day, they had kind of like milestones. So if they, like, uh, raised a certain amount of money, we would give them a treat. So they would get a bottle of water, or they would get a Coke, or they would get a... A donut. So, you know, we did head incentives and, you know, it was absolutely amazing. And people started walking through the door. People just started getting on the phones and, uh, <laughs> you know, they were all competing for the title of top dog. So it wasn't just about raising the adoption fee. It was about raising the most amount of money. So kind of near the end, or about five minutes before closing, I saw three of them really battling towards uh, winning uh, top dog. And eventually Kelsey from Can- uh, Aces Canine actually uh, took the title. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Yeah, it was it's fun. And look how much money you raised. And is this to keep uh, you you folks running through the COVID and stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I find where fundraising has substantially, you know, it's really had to change over the last couple of months. So yeah. it was one way we could fundraise where people could safely social distance in their own kennels, um, which kind of worked, yeah. <laughs> That's really cute. Wonderful. I think it was a great idea. Now, um, how are you doing as far as animals? Are you over inundated or are you managing to uh, get people to foster? Um, yeah, we have about 130 animals in our care at the moment. Um, a large majority of those are kittens, so a lot of them are younger kittens, so they're not back in shelter yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, we, you know, we're seeing adoption rates uh, are pretty high, so we're not too worried about um, uh, intake at the moment, but we probably will see an influx in the change of weather. So yes. the cold it gets, we start to see a larger amount of animals coming into our care. Yeah. You know, one of the things um, about adopting an animal... Um, because I've had two of my older uh, cats pass away, and yet at my age, a cat can live till twenty. My my, I've had my cats live to twenty. They would outlive me, and yeah. um, as much as I'd love to take a kitten, uh, I I think what would I would bond to that kitten, and then what would I do? Be, because I'm eighty one now. Um, that's 20 years. That'll be good if I can make 20 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I've done it. I, I'm thinking, like, do you get older uh, animals that people yeah, like myself? Do yeah, you? We, are, we actually have an eight-year-old that's in our care at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we've got a 16-year-old compassionate board. Um, but we do see a lot of seniors, and, you know, that's why we're always encouraging people, like, you know, give the older cats a little, a little break, right? Because the kids yes. are always cute, and, you know, they're always the ones that everyone wants. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. the kittens are so much fun. But I think as an older person, we need to think about uh, what we're going to, how we're going to look after that animal after we have to... 100%. Yeah, 100%, and yeah. Uh, the same with dogs. Do you get 
older dogs from people like myself that are having to go I'm not going in a home but never mind some people have to go to (laughs) and I I feel so sad for those animals and for the owners that they you know how could I part with my two dogs that I have and my two cats yeah yeah no it is particularly difficult and so do you get calls from people who are who are moving into senior center uh, seniors homes Yes, we get that quite often. Okay. Um, I was talking a little bit about the 16-year-old cats that we have. We actually have a program uh, where we help uh, people that are homeless or people that are fleeing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually allow, we actually do compassionate balls where we'll care for the animals until they're back on their feet. Some of the programs we have. But yeah, we do see a lot of people going into retirement homes and sometimes they're not able to take them with. But you know, generally we've actually found that a lot of the retirement um, villages and so forth are actually allowing uh, people to bring their pets with. Well, I think it's a good discussion um, because I think there are people who are knowing that they're getting close to having to do something. And one, one woman in particular that I know that had two cats was going to have her cats put down. Well, and I, and I, that's, in my own opinion you know i couldn't do that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i would rather ha- talk to you and uh and see if we could uh, find a home for my my little friends little that have friends. given me so yeah, pr- yeah. And, and so angela uh, what's the phone number that they would call to leave a message uh that they are thinking about having to move into a senior residence yeah it's two five zero six four zero seven four one five. okay and I've got to go. You, is the 16-year-old on your website? Uh, no, she isn't because she's not available for adoption. So oh. she's just a compassionate board. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Very yeah. nice. That's yeah. sweet of you. And I'm so glad that it was a successful fundraiser. Thank you. And, and we have Thank to you. really give Shirley a lot of um, applause for for her participation in your fundraiser. Uh, absolutely. Well, you know, she always comes to the party, right? Right. Yes, she yeah. really does. Well, thank okay. you. Thank you so much, Angela, for what oh, you're yeah. doing. You're welcome. And I want to thank everybody who participated in your fundraiser. I think they're wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, and I'll, okay. be in t- I'll be in touch with you in the future. Sounds good. Okay, Thanks. dear. Bye-bye. Thanks. And this is CFISFM, and we're just going to get our next guest on the line. And in the meantime, I'm kind of thinking about tomorrow being November 11th and uh, thinking about the relatives that I have had in my family that were in World War One and World War Two. Uh, my grandfather uh, heard Harold Henry heard he was in the Black Watch in the First World War and uh, in the Second World War my dad's brother Babe we called him he was in a Corvette that was torpedoed in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so he was MIA, but we never found him. So obviously he was killed. And then his brother, Charlie, was a gunner's mate and was um, on a ship, a, a minesweeper. And his cousin, Les, he was also on a minesweeper in the Atlantic. And they had to keep chopping the ice off of the uh, the the ship because they were afraid it was going to tip and uh, and then 
Um, Les's brother Mike, he was in the army, and I have a letter at home written from the brig because he'd gotten drunk in England and stolen a jeep and, and got caught. And uh, um, I think that's all the people on my dad's side. And it sounds like we got our guest and in remembrance. So, Judy, have we got Sandra on the line? Yeah. Here we go. So we've got Sandra on the line, and Sandra, I want to bring us up to date on the 50-50 draw and anything else we need to talk about with the Prince George Hospice. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Sandra. How's How are you doing? We're doing okay. So our, our second 50-50 jackpot is currently just over 67000 take home. So we're not halfway there yet, but we're getting close. So that's <laughs> always half full. We need to be positive. And, uh, so it is moving slowly, but it's moving. So yes, we're doing okay. So we still need help. Yes. Sure. Well, I, I think um, it would be a good Christmas gift. And that's the thing. Those 50-50 tickets are $25 each, and they would make a wonderful stocking stuffer. The draw is on Christmas Eve, yeah. and most people open one gift um, on Christmas Eve, so that'd be something fun to say, okay, open your stocking stuffer just before 5 o'clock, yeah. and then the draw is right at 5 o'clock. And, um, and again, at $25, you can give a gift to someone else and at the same time support the hospice. Well, and... So, and you're giving them like over $65,000, $7,000, because it'll be more than that by them. Well, I would take my gift back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it has that. potential to reach 150000 and we know it can be done because our first 50-50 did that. And um, so, yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed and we'll hope um, that we will reach that again. And um, But even 67000 it take-home is life-changing. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I don't know the name of the street. I know where the hospice is, but I don't know the name of the street. The hospice office itself is on Ferry Avenue. Ferry, right, right. Ferry Avenue, yeah. Yeah. And it's the building with the pillars in the front. And you can come down there and get a ticket. We're there Monday through Friday from 8 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. and they've got a, like, I, I just about missed the driveway last week. I, last Tuesday, I popped in and, and got my 50-50. But I, and I think the most important part of it is that we're helping the hospice, you know. And yet you're going to help yourself. Somebody's going to get it. And uh, someone's going to get the house, too. Someone's yep. going to get the house. So Christmas Eve is going to be exciting because we have the 50 draw at 5 o'clock and then the house draw at 6 o'clock. So it's going to be two happy people wow. in an hour. Wouldn't that be great? What if you won both? Greedy, greedy. Imagine. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> you really lucky. But you know what? Everything is possible. You just never know. Yeah, I know. And, and uh, I mean... Uh, $75,000 would be, if you wanted to move into a new house, it'd be a nice uh, down payment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that amount is life-changing. That's um, paying off a lot of debt. A lot of us have debt. And um, to just have a new start somewhere with that amount, um, 
definitely would be big or helping someone in your family that you know may be struggling. Um, yeah, yeah, well, they can help themselves. <laughs> they can help themselves. Okay, but, never mind. <laughs> but I was thinking of uh, a new electric uh, car, truck, you know, like a, a SUV. That, yeah. that w- they're quite expensive. That would be something that a person could use in this country. Exactly. Yeah. Or snowblower. Um, that's something we can definitely lose here in Prince George. Yeah. Well, you can marry a snowblower. <laughs> exactly. Same yeah. as a dishwasher. <laughs> yes, all those things. There's but, a lot of things you can do with that money. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, I hope people will come in and uh, buy a Christmas gift for their families and and give them out on uh, before five o'clock on Christmas Eve. I feel pretty good about doing that. If I was a mom or a grandpa or a yeah. grandma, you know, yeah. having everybody over for Christmas Eve and giving everybody a gift. Judy says she's not doing it. <laughs> can't afford to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she can't afford to. Well, I'm going to keep bugging you, Sandra, until um, December 24th. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Keep no, and that's yes, just please. a little over a month away. Yeah, it's not that far away. Anyway, keep it up, and we'll keep um, um, getting people to stop in and, and get tickets for, yeah. They can't buy the house anymore. I've already got it. Nope, can't buy the house ticket, but for the $100 house ticket price now, you can buy four fifty-fifty. so yes. There you go. Yeah, good. All right, my dear. Thank you so much thank for bringing so us much. up to date. We'll talk thank to you soon. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. And so to getting back to tomorrow, November 11th, uh, Remembrance Day, um, you know, I, I just listed off my dad's side of the family. On my mom's side of the family, there was Doug Delaney. He was in the Air Force. Evelyn Huguenine Delaney, or Delaney Huguenine, she was in the Air Force, too, one of the few women that... Um, I know that went into the forces. Uh, their cousin Jack Delaney, he went in, um, and then uh, um, my aunt Eileen's um, was engaged to Johnny Howe, and Johnny went into the army. And when he came back, he he died of a lung disease, and so she ended up um, marrying another. Uh, I'm not sure if my uncle Walter was in the navy or. Or the army, but she ended up marrying him. So we had ten, ten people uh, serving Canada, uh, one in the First World War and, and nine in the Second World War. And I just want to remember all of those um, wonderful people who, who went over for an adventure and ended up seeing absolutely horror. They really didn't know what they were going no, into. No, I had no idea. Just young yeah. men and women and nurses um, that went over there to the horror. I worked for um, a couple of, a doctor and a nurse that were in a, a mass unit in Korea, and it really upset them. So we want to send out wishes to all the people who served and uh, their families and their families for tomorrow. And we'll be back next week. This that is- we will. This is Senior Moments. Uh, Tune in next week. We'll be here. 
Senior Moments is a co-production of 93.1 CFIS-FM and the Prince George Council of Seniors. Senior Moments is produced by Sharon Hurd with production assistance from A.J. Fair. Theme music is courtesy of Golf Brooks Music. Sponsored by Riverbend Seniors Community, catch the rebroadcast of today's show tonight at 9 or replay past shows through the podcast at cfisfm.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.